Uh, it's about 7.15, so we will get started. We're on page, what page did you say? 66. 66, okay. And then we'll kind of recap and then we'll go. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the opportunity we have to continue our study of 1 Corinthians. We ask uh, your grace to us as we try to contemplate and think on these scriptural matters that we can think correctly and rightly and that the Spirit will illuminate our hearts and minds to these truths and apply them to our own lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at this section. Um, well, we're looking at chapter 12. And uh, in verses 4 through 11, Paul emphasized the diversity of gifts. Now remember, the reason he does that is because the Corinthians have a fascination with one gift, tongues. They're fascinated with that gift. And Paul is trying to disabuse them of that fascination, of that emphasis on tongues um, versus the other gifts. And now in ch chapter 12, verses 12 through 31, he's going to use the human body as an illustration that the human body has different parts uh, and these different parts are all necessary for the human body to function. Same way in the church, there's different spiritual gifts. They're all necessary. Some may not seem to be as important as others, you know, and we'll talk about that, but they're all essential to the functioning of the body. So uh, in verses uh, 12, uh, and 13, he said, he said there, the, human, the church, like the human body, is one. Many parts, but there's one body. And he says, so it is with Christ. Many parts, but one body. And now we are ready for verses 14 through 20, where it says the church, like the human body, is made up of many members. And he says in verse 14... Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, say in the following verses, Paul uses kind of a touch of humor to illustrate the point that the human body is like the local church in that the various parts have different roles to play, but all these are needed in order for the body to function, the body of Christ to function, and the human body to function. Verse 15. Now, if the foot should say, this is where the humor kind of comes in, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an ear, I'm not an eye, excuse me, I do not belong to the, to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. So Paul begins here by personifying, that's just a big word, which means he's applying personal characteristics. It's like the foot could talk. It's like the ear could talk as though they, they were persons, you know. Uh, and if they were, they wouldn't deny their place in the body, even though the eye is not the ear, and the ear is not the eye, and the foot's not, you know, the hand, and so forth. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, there would, uh, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? So here's the, he's applying this analogy is that all the members of the body need each other. You can see where this is going. All the people in the church with different spiritual gifts need each other. But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wants them to be. So this diversity 
of the human body is like the diversity of the gifts. God has placed. Um, verse 19. If they were all one part, where would the body be? Pretty obvious there. Um, and if they were many parts, and as it is, there are many parts but one body. So all this is fairly self-explanatory that in order to function, you need these different parts to have different functions. Then we see um, <coughs> 21 through 24. The members of the church with their diverse gifts, like the parts of the body, are mutually dependent. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the, and the hand cannot say to the the feet, I don't need you. Paul again returns to this personification, but now his point that some parts of the body that may seem to be superior are not really so and are actually quite dependent on other parts that are not as highly prized. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So some parts of the body, like internal organs, may seem to be weaker, but are actually indispensable to the body's function. But appearances can be deceiving. So in the church, folks with gifts that may not seem all that important are actually essential to the church's function. Verse 23, And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So when Paul says that, speaks of parts that are less honorable and unpresentable, he's probably referring to the genitals, those parts of the body that we do not present to the public. Yet these parts are most nece certainly necessary to human life. The fact that we cover them with clothing shows that we honor them. And God has composed the human body so that the parts that appear to be weak and less worthy are in fact accorded the greater honor of having important functions or receiving special attention. That is, God has made it so that we honor parts of the body that seem to lack it. Some gifted people are in the forefront of the church life, yet some who are operating behind the scenes, so to speak, are essential to the functioning of the church. So, you know, that's just the way it is. And, uh, but we have to keep that in mind uh, that, you know, somebody's got to take care of the plumbing in this place. If it, if, if you're waiting on me <laughs> to take care of the plumbing, you know, <laughs> I learned a lesson long ago. If the plumbing is, if there's nothing wrong with the plumbing, don't touch it. Don't touch the plumbing. Don't get into plumbing projects. Don't, don't start plumbing projects on Friday evening. You know, don't do unless you just absolutely have to. Yeah, you just, just, just don't, get, don't get into it. You know, don't do it. I don't start those kind of projects until in the morning so I can call somebody to come over, you know, when, when it goes bad. So somebody's got to do the plump, plumbing. Somebody's got to clean the toilets. I mean, that's just the way it is. Uh, and if, if, if the toilets aren't clean, you know, visitors aren't going to be very happy with your church, you know, and it's not a pleasant job. I don't, I mean, I have to clean my toilets at home, you know, <laughs> but that's just the way it is. Somebody's got to do these things. They're, they're essential. Somebody's got to change the diapers, I've changed a few diapers, but, you know, it's not, it's, it's not on my list now, you know, to do. So, uh, you know, we don't want to know these details <laughs> about these things, you know, but we can't run this place if we don't have these things happening and people doing all these functions. They're just really essential. And that's what Paul is trying to say here about the gifts. 
Number D here, he says, uh, all members are to have equal concern for one another, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. God has arranged things in a way that there should be no division or conflict among the members of the body, since they need each other in order to function as a body. Um, if someone suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. If one part of the body suffers, it affects the whole body. As for example, if one has a toothache. <laughs> and if one part of the body is admired, you know, you have a beautiful smile, it may make up for the deficiency in another part of the body. That's what people say about me, you know. <laughs> they don't say anything. Each believer is a part of the body of Christ, and no one is self-sufficient, Paul says. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. It should be obvious that Paul's analogy of the human body in the preceding verses was really about the Corinthian church. He now makes it clear, you are the body of Christ. And Christ has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Paul now lists a sampling of those members God has placed in the church, ranking at least the first three in terms of importance. As in the previous list, verses 8 through 10, tongues is at the bottom of the list, probably indicating Paul wishes to dampen the Corinthian enthusiasm for the gift. So apostles are listed first. Ephesians 2.20, Paul says, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So apostles are, and prophets laid the foundation of the church. An apostle was a specially gifted and divinely commissioned man who had the authority to speak for Christ. In order to be an apostle, one had to at least have three qualifications. The apostle had to be an eyewitness, uh, remember Acts 1, when they're choosing someone to replace uh, Judas. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men, for one of those must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Paul claims he saw the Lord, remember? Uh, Have I not seen our Lord Jesus, 1 Corinthians 9, 1. And he appeared to James, to all the apostles after his resurrection, and last of all, he appeared to me. So one had to have been an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord. Two, he had to be appointed directly by Jesus Christ. Remember, the Gospels say he appointed 12. Acts 1-2, until the day he was taken up, after giving instructions to the apostles he had chosen. And Paul says, Paul and the apostles sent not from men, nor by God, but by Jesus Christ, who raised him from, and God the Father raised him from the dead. So Paul, you know, claims there that he is chosen to be an apostle, appointed an apostle by Christ himself. And three, an apostle had to be able to confirm his mission and message with miraculous 
signs. Um, Matthew 10 talks about the disciples Jesus sent out. He gave them authority to drive out impure spirits, to heal spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. Remember in Acts 2, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So these miracles were designed to authenticate that these were genuine spokesmen from God. 2 Corinthians, there were other things too, but that was one thing. Paul says himself in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle. What are those? Signs, wonders, and miracles. Those are just three words kind of synonymous for miracles. They're all sign miracles, wonders, the amazement. They're all just Greek words for miracles. The writer of Hebrews says, How should we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles. So, um, apostles chosen by Christ, uh, they were responsible for the foundation of the church. I say it would seem to be obvious that there would be no apostles after the death of the last one. Last one died. Presumably that was John from church history says that. We don't know for sure, but supposedly he's the last one. Roman Catholicism claims that the bishops of the church are the successors to the apostles and retain their authority. So the Roman Catholic Church believes in apostolic succession that... <clears throat> The popes are the successors to the apostles. They have all the authority of the apostles and so forth, which Protestants reject. We don't believe in apostolic succession in that sense. <clears throat> Mormons have 12 apostles who govern their church. Uh, numerous charismatic groups believe the gift of apostleship is still available today. So it depends on the group. <clears throat> I mean, generally none of them <clears throat> claim that the apostleship is exactly like the 12 or <clears throat> like Paul, they have, but they do claim, uh, I would just name him thinking of a few, a group of churches called Sovereign Grace Churches. <clears throat> In fact, I was just listening to a podcast today by a fella who wrote a book about evangelicalism. He was in the church and he was in this Sovereign Grace movement. The Sovereign Grace movement started out in the 70s. They were just an offshoot of like the Jesus people, kind of in the 70s, all these young people and so forth, Jesus movement. And uh, he tells a story, and I've heard this story before. Uh, a lot of them, eventually they started meeting in Bible studies and one group one formed a church called the Sovereign Grace uh, Association or something. They call them Sovereign Grace Churches now. But the leader of this, the leading group, was in Gaithersburg, Maryland, C.J. Mahaney. I don't know if you've ever heard of this name or not, but he was a big name in evangelicalism 10 years ago. Um, <clears throat> and he... Uh, in the 1990s, he discovered, they discovered Calvinism. Charismatic churches, Pentecostal churches, are not charismatic. They're all Arminian, 
exclusively, but Sovereign Grace, they discovered kind of Calvinism and uh, they took that in and, and formed that as part of their movement, but they still believe that all the gifts are available, including the gift of apostleship. Uh, Mahaney, uh, his church, his, he was well known, uh, there was a movement called T4G, Together for the Gospel. I don't know if you ever heard of this movement or not, but it was a group of guys who got together <clears throat> and uh, uh, Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Seminary, a Baptist, and Mark Dever, another Baptist who is pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, started a group called Nine Marks. And if you go into our resource center now and you look on the wall, on the right side of those booklets, you'll see a 27 booklets by Nine Marks. So they put out a lot of literature. We're a Nine Marks church, actually. So if you look on the Nine Marks website, our church is listed as a Nine Marks church. We didn't join it. We don't really, we don't really join it. It's just that you subscribe to the beliefs, which are just basically uh, Christian beliefs. You know, if you, if you believe what Nine Marks, it's, it's a Baptist kind of group, you know. Uh, if you believe what they believe. So people looking for a church will sometimes look at nine marks and they might you know, look for a church in the area and they'll say, okay, then I know kind of what this church believes. And so uh, there was him, there was a guy named Ligon Duncan who's a Presbyterian. And uh, then there was C.J. Mahaney. It's kind of a strange, <laughs> because here you got this kind of charismatic guy, but Calvinistic guy. And uh, they had conferences and they grew from, and they had their last one, I think last year they just kind of closed it down, finally. But uh, they would get together and men would come together. It's like the Shepherds Conference or big conference. Thousands at the end would come, several thousand. And uh, what were you wondering? Did they shut it down or something? No, I was just saying I've read several. Those were, some of them were pretty good books. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. All these people, I mean, Ligon Duncan, you know. But Mahaney... Um, he was kind of a strange dude because they would they would accuse when when they would joke when they would go to you go to these conferences. I just watched some of the things, but they would joke about him being an apostle because he was considered kind of an apostle. You know, of course they don't believe that anybody can be an apostle, but he's part of their group and he and and it's not like he was claiming to be like the apostle Paul. He was just claiming that he was kind of the leader of their group, kind of like an archbishop or something. You know, as well. But anyway, they claimed this. So you've got this charismatic group claims to believe in the gifts of tongues and all that kind of stuff. It's a little strange there. But, but his church, <clears throat> this, the guy was listening to this podcast, is, is, he grew up in that church and so forth. And he was, he was writing this book, and he's claiming kind of some spiritual abuse because one of the things that happened in his church was, you know, you have these, charismatic gifts, and people say, the Lord told me this. I got a word from the Lord that you should do this, or God has said our church. Pastor Ken gets up and says, you know, God spoke to me and said our church should do this. You know, that wouldn't go over too well with me, <laughs> and he wouldn't do it. But you can see, that's, that's, you really got a lot of authority there. If you say, God told me to do this, God said we should do this. God says we should buy this land and build this building. Well, if God told him, you know, what are you going to do if you believe that stuff? Isn't that called 
called schizophrenia. <laughs> but that's, that's common in, in these churches. It's common today. It's still common, very, very common. A word from the Lord, a prophet gets up and speaks. So there's no, you can't do anything with that. I mean, if God says, you know, and we have it a little bit in our group, you know, God told me to do this or God told me to do that. If, if it's not in the Bible, God didn't tell you anything. Just let me lay that out there. But, but people believe that, that somehow God speaks to them, God communicates to them uh, specific, you know, things, specific uh, things they should do and so forth like that. That's, it's not uncommon in non-charismatic circles. It's not uncommon in Baptist circles. People say it. But very common there. He was just saying this was going on all the time, you know, and so it leads to all kinds of things. But there was problems in that church. Mahaney left. Uh, the, the guy who took over was Harris. Josh, was it Josh Harris? Yeah. And unfortunately, he left the faith. <laughs> he gave up. The, he, he's become an apostate. So it's sad. But Mahaney left and went to Louisville, moved the, moved the organization there. I don't hear much about him anymore. But the Assemblies of God believes in apostles. So if you look at the Assembly of God website and read what they believe, they believe, they, they talk a lot about it, but they believe that, yeah, there can be people who are apostles, not like the Apostle Paul, they will clarify, but yeah, there can be, you know, they, they're kind of walking a fine line there because you probably won't find people in, I, don't, I doubt you'll find people in the Assemblies of God, pastors who call themselves apostles, but they're in a larger charismatic movement which has a lot of people who call themselves apostles, you know. So they say on their website, I was just reading it, that they, you know, they, they believe that God has apostles today, not like the 12 or Paul, but still they're kind of a higher level up there than just pastors. Um, so we have the, you know, the, the Pentecostal movement, <clears throat> which... Starts in the early 19, started in the 1900s, right around 1900. You have the first really modern um, uh, movement of speaking in tongues. I talked about that last time. Um, the Zusa Street and all that kind of stuff uh, became part. The, the it was it was a confined mostly to the holiness churches, and some of those churches remain holiness. No 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 tongues or anything. No, nothing like that. Some of them became Pentecostal too, and uh, so forth. Um, but then, um, so you got Pentecostalism, 1900. In 1960, you have usually what's called the charismatic movement. It's called the second wave, which is uh, the idea of these spiritual gifts, tongues, went into other denominations. You had Catholics speaking in tongues. You had Anglicans speaking in tongues and all this kind of stuff. So, it's not the denomination didn't adopt it, but you had Anglican priests who spoke in tongues and Catholics spoke. This was kind of what we call the charismatic, it's usually called the charismatic movement, 1960. And then there's something called the third wave. And this was, uh, this is usually uh, started, the, the foundation for this is given to a couple of men, C. Peter Wagner and John Wimber, about 1980. Um, C. Peter Wagner was a seminary professor at Fuller Theological Seminary out in California, and he coined this term the third wave. Um, it, um, 
This third wave is different from um, this first wave and the second wave, and in that it's um, it it didn't insist upon uh, a baptism of the spirit and subsequent subsequent to conversion. So uh, in the Assemblies of God Church, you're saved, and then subsequently you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. It's a separate experience, separate work of grace. So you get saved, but then you got to get this other one. In the Church of God, you got three. Remember, you got saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. You got you got to be saved, then you got sanctification, which is you're kind of, you, you don't commit any known sin anymore. You're fully sanctified. And then thirdly, you are uh, baptized with the Spirit and you speak in tongues. You got three steps there. Um, so this third wave that comes along still wants to accept the charismatic gifts and everything, but they don't insist upon <clears throat> this kind of crisis experience, you know, subsequent to conversion. They also, uh, though they believed in the gifts, they also were kind of moderated on tongues. That is, in the assemblies of God, the only evidence for the baptism of the experience, that experience is speaking in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, you ain't got the baptism. It's plain and simple. That's all there is to it. Now, in this group, no. They, um, they moderated that on the importance of tongue. They emphasized other gifts and so forth that you could have, you know, um, and that tongues, you know, they kind of followed Paul here in that sense. Um, but they emphasized signs and wonders and so forth uh, equal to the apostolic age. The other key figure was this guy, John Wimber, who also taught at Fuller. And he was responsible for starting a group of churches called the Vineyard Churches. You may have heard of Vineyard Churches or the Vineyard Movement. It was kind of a big movement here, 1980s and afterward, Vineyard Churches. Um, in 2001, Wagner said that we have entered the Second Apostolic Age. Uh, and he wanted the church to, to accept, to embrace the apostolic office. So I'm talking about this because I'm talking about apostles here and, and the gift of apostleship. Um, so he, was, he said in 19, 2001, he said, you know, churches are only going to be um, spiritual, spiritually vital. They're only going to uh, really have all the gifts. They're only going to have this if, if they're only going to have it if, if, if we accept we must accept the gift of apostleship, the gift of apostle. And in 1995, uh, well, in 1995, Wagner was already calling himself an apostle. And uh, he claimed full apostleship like the Apostle Paul. So it's not like the Assemblies of God or a lot of charismatic churches, but he claimed, this, I got everything that Paul had, you know, I've got it, I've got it all. Um, uh, two prophetesses, declared that he had received this apostolic anointing. And this movement is now called the New Apostolic Reformation. 
the New Apostolic Reformation. And the purpose of this is set on returning apostles and prophets to the churches. Um, now, these people are big supporters of Donald Trump, <laughs> too. This guy who ran for governor of Pennsylvania, Mastriano, you know, he's a part of this group, apostolic kind of group kind of thing. Um, charismatics, you know, evangelicals are kind of divided on Trump. Eh, some are for him, some, some are not so for him. But in the charismatic group a lot, they're, they're, he has t he, Trump tended to have stronger support when he, when he, he, had, he tended to have more support among the charismatics like this new apostolic group than he did just on evangelicals. But he's got tremendous support among evangelicals, you know. So they did get something like that. Yeah, yeah, they got something right. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> so, um, so he was saying, you know, the, the church has replaced apostles with pastors and elders, and we need to get back to a reformation and bring back these apostles and so forth. Um, so we've got, you know, we've got these well-known third-wave charismatic leaders. Uh, there's, I don't know if you've heard of these names, C. Peter Wagner again, uh, Rich Joyner, Mike Bickle, a lot, lot, of, lot of names here. Um, they have organizations like the International uh, House of Prayer, God TV, Trinity Broadcasting Network. I haven't, I haven't seen that in years. I guess it's still on, I'm sure it's on cable. But, uh, you know, the religious that were TBN, if you remember that one. That's the only one I can actually remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's still on TV, but Paul Crouch is dead. And his wife, is. She's, I don't know if she's dead or not. I don't, know who, I don't know who's running that now, but I'm sure it's on my TV. I should look at it and see. There's so many channels on my cable that I have no idea <laughs> where things are even at anymore. I don't know why I'm paying this big cable bill when I don't even watch... Cable, I don't even I don't even watch it. So why am I? You know I don't know. I must be a fool. But anyway, um, so they have words like you know, dominionism, generational curses, you know, and prayer walking and uh, all kinds of stuff. You know, um, you know, there's millions of people are associated with this, and it's it's a kind of a growing kind of thing. Um, So anyway, you got you got a lot of people who are into the gifts, into tongues, and all this kind of stuff. They believe in new revelation. Uh, Bill Johnson, the pastor of Bethel Church in Redding, California, I'll mention him just a moment here again. Uh, he believes that the church needs new revelation from God, uh, and uh, so that's something kind of new because those of us who are not Pentecostals, not Charismatics, have often criticized the Charismatic movement because we say, hey, uh, this prophecy you're giving, this is like revelation. This is like new revelation. They say, no, no, it's not. It, it really it, it agrees, always agrees with Scripture, and so it's not really new. You know, it's not, there's not revelation in that sense. But these people claim, yeah, there is. Uh, so you got new ideas, totally new things. Um, it's, it's rather interesting. Um, 
Here's what Bill Johnson says. Let me just quote you from him. I'm convinced that the place of revelation will increase very rapidly in these last hours of history. That acceleration of revelation is beginning in our day. It's about the purposes of God being unveiled on the planet. Ongoing revelation and encounters with the power of God launch us into, un, into understanding of things we've never understood before. He says, it's absolutely impossible to live the normal Christian life without receiving regular revelation from God. He's talking about new revelation. The key to being spiritually discerning, to open our spirit, our spirit man to direct revelation from God. So I'm just saying this is a growing kind of thing. And Bill Johnson out in Redding, California, Bethel Church is a huge, huge operation, you know, and huge, huge thing. There's just lots of these things. We don't maybe not be aware of them, but they're all around us. And they, as I say, they're very influential. That's why I know about them, because they're very influential politically in the Republican Party, especially. You know, that's where they, they, they tend to, to be at and have been at. Um, um, so we've got apostles. Remember, he mentions first. And then I'm back to prophets here. Uh, I say prophets spoke the very words... Okay. Prophets spoke the very words of God with authority equal to the Old Testament prophets and equal to the words of Scripture. Um, apostles and prophets were custodians of special revelation that provide the very foundation of the church. Or Ephesians 2.20, we read that. In 1 Corinthians 12-13, through 13, the text moves from the gift manifested prophecy to gifted persons, suggesting no dichotomy is intended between them. That is, somebody who has the gift is, can be called a prophet and so forth. Paul does not allude to an office of prophet. Clearly there was, there was an office of apostle in the New Testament. Uh, so, but there's no evidence that there was an office of prophet as there was in the Old Testament, say. So there are people who are called Agabus is called a prophet because he has the gift of prophecy, but there's no office. Um, an office is something someone is appointed to, a position that one is called to feel, fill. So uh, there is the office of pastor. There is the office of deacon. There's requirements for those offices. You're called to that office by church. There's the office of apostle, there's requirements, qualifications, there's, and you're called, they were called to that office by Christ, but there's no office of a, a prophet per se. The apostles were appointed by Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul focuses on the gifts themselves. Those who regularly exercise the gift of prophecy may be kind of referred to as a prophet. 13.1, Paul's they speak about prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch. Prophets in both the Old and New Testament spoke infallibly, that is, with 100% accuracy. Paul, uh, Moses spells out in Deuteronomy uh, 18, 29 through 32, but a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet claim, proclaims, as 
the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, this is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. If someone declaring themselves a prophet proclaims any supposed revelation from God that turns out to be inaccurate or untrue, he must summarily be rejected as a spokesman for God. Deuteronomy 18 is clear that such prophets are counterfeits. In his book, Strange Fire, The Danger of Offending the Holy Spirit with Prophecies, John MacArthur recounts a whole series of prophecies by charismatic leaders that have proven to be false. He says, additional illustrations of egregious falsehoods and bizarre blasphemies and charismatic prophecies are not difficult to find. Benny Hinn made a series of celebrated prophetic utterances December 1989, none of which came true. He confidently told his congregation at the Orlando Christian Center that God had revealed to him Fidel Castro would die sometime in the 1990s. The homosexual community in America would be destroyed by fire at night before 1995, and a major earthquake would cause havoc on the East Coast before the year 2000. Of course, none of those things happen. Rick Joyner, another of the Kansas City prophets and founder of Morningstar Ministries, predicted in the 1990s that Southern California would experience an earthquake of such magnitude that much of the state would be swallowed up by the Pacific Ocean. Though the prediction failed to come to pass, Joyner continues to insist it will happen eventually. Well, a lot of people believe that's going to happen eventually, don't they? A lot of people wish it would happen. <laughs> I didn't say that. I know, you didn't, but I was thinking of you. <laughs> In 2011, after a nine-magnitude earthquake hit Japan, Joyner claimed on the basis of a prophetic revelation that the same demonic forces that empowered Nazi Germany were using global events sparked by the earthquake in Japan to gain inroads in the United States. Charismatics try to get around the problem of erroneous prophecies by arguing that there are two kinds of prophets, infallible and fallible. The apostles and those who wrote the scripture are said to have been infallible, but today's prophets are fallible. Charismatic prophet Bill Hammond says, we must not be quick to call someone a false prophet simply because something he said was inaccurate. I don't know what you call them, but <laughs> missing, missing it a few times in prophecy does not make a false prophet. <laughs> no mortal prophet is infallible. All are liable to make mistakes. Well, what good are they? But it's impossible to believe that New Testament prophecy is different from Old Testament prophecies. One can understand the need for a new revelation from God as the program of God moves from the old dispensation of Israel to the new dispensation of the church. The gift of prophecy was beneficial to the first century church while the New Testament books were being written, which provide all the necessary, all the truth necessary for the church to carry out its mission in the new age. Once the scriptures were completed, there was no longer a need for a new revelation. Protestants have traditionally believed in the sufficiency of scripture, the idea being that Scripture is sufficient for our faith and salvation in this age and that God has given us everything we need to know in order to live lives that are pleasing to Him. In Scripture, the Westminster Confession of Faith says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added 
whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. So we've got apostles and prophets. Teachers presumably give instruction and application from revelation already given in the Old Testament. And then we have miracles and gifts of healing. They were previously mentioned in verses 9 through 10. We talked about them a little bit. Helping appears only here in the New Testament. It has the idea of, a helpful, of helpful deeds and is probably a general term for all kinds of assistance. The truth is we don't know for sure. We just have the word helpful, but we assume it's kind of a general gift uh, for assistance. Guidance is sometimes translated administration and suggests the idea of giving direction and guiding others. Verse 29, are all apostles? Question mark. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? This list of rhetorical questions expects a no answer. Are all apostles? No, obviously. Paul's emphasis on the fact of diversity, Paul's emphasis is on the, reinforces the emphasis on the fact of diversity within the body. Paul is taught that each person has received at least one gift and no person received all the gifts. The question would seem to imply that there is no single gift that everyone has received. Even in the first century, not everyone had the gift of tongues. Now, of course, again, as I say, um, many charismatics, not the third wave, as I said, they kind of changed that, but in Pentecostalism generally, uh, everybody is expected to get the gift. Uh, in the assemblies of God, if you don't have it, you don't have the baptism of the Spirit. Now, I don't know what they said about Ken's mother, because here's the, here's the, here's the pastor of the church, and his mom ain't got it. You know, what, what, <laughs> I wonder what... What do they think about her? You know, it seems a little odd, you know. Now, I'm not sure that was a, that was a church of God holiness to the mountain. So I'm not sure what they thought about all those things. But um, So it depends on the charismatic group, how, how strongly they, they hold to that. Um, 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 so to get around this, I mean, I've heard different explanations because, you know, like the, the Assemblies of God is pretty strong about the baptism. You, you have to have the gift of, of tongues. So some argue I've read would say, well, um, not everyone is gifted to speak in public, but they are able to do so in private. So... You know, may they not be able to do it in public in church, but they can do it in private. Um, so they claim, so many claim, well, it's available to every Christian. Every Christian can get it if they want it or something. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the idea. Uh, here's Assemblies of God. All believers are entitled to and should ardently expect and earnestly seek the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire according to the command of the Lord Jesus Christ, the baptism of believers in the Holy Spirit is witnessed by the initial sign of speaking with tongues as the Spirit of God gives them utterance. Um, verse 31, 
A. Now earnestly desire the greater gifts. This verse has sometimes, and really quite often, is interpreted to mean that believers should seek spiritual gifts. Now earnestly desire, sounds like what it means, <laughs> to seek spiritual gifts. But as we have seen in verse 11, spiritual gifts are sovereignly given by the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, all these are the work of the one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. Uh, I guess, you know, as a Pentecostal, you could say, okay, Bill Combs, uh, that's true. He determines, you know, what gift you get, but... I'm not sure well how you do that, but 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 you should be able to get the gift of tongues. I don't know. He, if he distributes them as he determines, it sounds like Paul is saying, and he's, the whole point of this chapter is not everybody speaks in tongues. Not everybody has these gifts. But it does say desire the greater gifts. The greater gifts are presumably spelled out in verse 28 with apostles at the top of the list. Given the fact that apostles were chosen by Christ personally, no amount of desire can make one an apostle. The words earnestly desire translate the, the Greek verb zelao, zelao, which means, as you can see, it's, we get our word zealous from that Greek word, Greek verb, to be zealous for something. It's in the plural here. I would interpret it this way. The Corinthians as a church are to be zealous, that is you plural, now you plural earnestly desire or be zealous for the greater gifts. To desire what is greater means to desire what is most beneficial for the church. In the context, Paul has in mind prophecy over against uninterpreted tongues. That's the whole point of chapter 14. The whole chapter is devoted to the superiority of prophecy over tongues. To desire the greater gifts is simply a different way of stating what the overall argument makes clear, namely that all things should be done for the edification of the whole body. So I think he's saying you as a church should desire the greater gifts. Your focus should be on the most important gifts and not tongues as you are doing. All right. Let's look at chapter 13 then. Uh, 1231b through 13. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. The last part of verse 31 transitions to the theme of the next chapter, which Paul calls the most excellent way. The way the Corinthians are pursuing with their view of the gifts is actually destructive of the church rather than seeking what is most beneficial for the church, what Paul calls the common good in verse 7 of chapter 12. The most excellent way is the way of love a fruit of the Spirit, not a spiritual gift. Gifts should be exercised in the context of love, for without love the gifts have no usefulness. The word love means to act, as you've heard many times in this church, in the best interest of another, and is exemplified in the New Testament by God's giving of His Son. But God demonstrates His own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul explains what love is in terms of actions, not feelings. Paul uses 15 verbs, not adjectives, in verses 4 through 7 to explain love. Love is active. It has to be shown. Well, first, the necessity of love. 
The first three verses, Paul says that if any of the gifts of the Spirit are evident in our lives, but are not accompanied by the fruit of love, then the exercise of that gift is valueless. This is because, as we learn in chapter 12, each of the gifts has been given for the edification of fellow members of the church and not to bring glory to ourselves. So he says in verse 1 of chapter 13, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and cannot fathom and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. In these verses, Paul moves from the actual to the hypothetical. Paul can speak in the tongues of men, but not the tongues of angels. He surely has the gift of prophecy, but he cannot fathom all mysteries and knowledge, which will require omniscience. Paul is using hyperbole, that is, exaggeration, to make his point. So he's exaggerating here. If I, if I could speak in the tongues of men and angels, you know, but I, I can't. Uh, if I had the gift of prophecy can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, you know, omniscience. You know, but I don't have that kind of prophetic knowledge. If I have a gift that could move mountains, you know, I'm, he's kind of exaggerating here. If, if I had this unbelievable abilities, gifts, if the gifts, the spiritual gifts I had were, had all these capabilities, but I don't have love, then even those hyperbolic, those unbelievable things were worth nothing. Uh, so I say he's using hyperbole to make a point. Even if he had these extraordinary gifts, gifts beyond what the Corinthians are fascinated with, they'd be of no value to him without love. When Paul speaks of not having love, he's not thinking of love as a possession of some kind, but to act in a way... That's loving. Paul means to shock the Corinthians with these statements. They apparently placed great importance, if not the greatest, on certain spiritual gifts, especially tongues. But the gifts are really useless unless exercised in love. Such tongues are only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. The idea of being empty, hollow sound, though it may be loud. In verse 3, Paul says that even sacrifice Self-sacrificing philanthropy is worthless without love. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship. The Greek text is not certain at this point. Some manuscripts have the word burned, NIV margin, instead of boast. If I give over my body to hardship that I may boast. It could be if I give over my body to be burned. Either way, you're giving it over to hardship. I'm willing to let it be burned. I'm willing to boast, uh, they would both make sense. The same point would be, same argument would be made here. Well, the character of love. These verses are not so much a description of love as a depiction of love in action. They personify love, showing what it does, what it does not do, and the ways in which it manifests itself. In this way, Paul extols 
the virtues of love and shows it to be of surpassing value. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. Does not boast. It's not proud. So love responds to others or to difficulties passively by being patient and actively by being kind. There are two sides of the Greek response, God's response to us. God's patient, God's kind. Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead to repentance? Paul now begins a list of verbs telling us how love does not behave. It doesn't envy. The word envy has the idea of envy and jealousy used in 1 Corinthians 3.3 where Paul says, You're still worldly, for you there is jealousy. Same word there, and quarrelings among you, envy. You're acting like mere humans. It is easy to be envious of the gifts of others. The word boast means to heap praise on oneself. It describes one who behaves as a braggart. Boasting was one of the besetting sins of the Corinthians. Remember, Paul says in chapter 3, so then no more boasting. <laughs> Verse chapter 4, it says, and why do you why do you, why, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Your boasting is not good. So he has a lot to say about that. Um, they're boasting about tongues, certainly. Pride is another character flaw we associate with the Corinthians. Greek word means to be prideful, to have an exaggerated self-conception, to be puffed up. And Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 4. Then you will not be puffed up. You know, don't go beyond what was written. You will not be puffed up. He says in five two, and you are proud. Eight one, but knowledge puffs up. So there's a lot of that in the past we've looked at. Verse five: It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. To dishonor others means to behave disgratefully towards others. It suggests poor manners and rude behavior. Those who see themselves as superior can easily look down and behave badly toward those who see they see as beneath them. How we treat others who are not as gifted as we may be is a good indicator of our own spiritual condition. The word self-seeking or seeking its own advantage is the very opposite of Agape, love. Love does not seek to advance its own interests at the expense of others. Seeking one's own self-worth is not the higher good. Remember in chapter 10 he said, No one should seek their own good but the good of others. He said, I try to please everyone in every way. I'm not seeking my own good but the good of many. It's kind of, all these are kind of preparation for what we're reading here. Not easily angered means that one who loves is not easily provoked or irritated by those around them, which is very similar to the patience that began the list. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Reminds us of God's mercy towards us in that God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting people's sins against them. The phrase keeps no records is the same word as not counting in 2 Corinthians 5, 91. How many of us keep records? <laughs> There's a troubling sin, isn't it? You know, We remember what people have done to us and against us. But these are convicting things when you read Paul's list here of love, what it should be, 
it's, it's, boy, this is very convicting here. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Not only does love not keep a record of wrongs, it does not delight in evil. It does not enjoy hearing about wrongdoing by others, but enjoys and rejoices in the triumph of truth, particularly the truth, triumph of the truth of the gospel in people's lives. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Key word here is obviously always. This is what love always does. Love protects. It's willing to overlook the shortcomings of others and not betray them. The Greek word translated protects can also have the idea of bearing or enduring. It's not perfectly here what Paul has in mind here. Um, this meaning could be somewhat synonymous with the last quality, perseveres. They're close. Love also trusts in that it's not quickly, does not quickly give up on those who stumble in the Christian life. Love does not give up hoping, it hopes for a better future for our fellow believers, and it perseveres in all these qualities. We might also express Paul's thought with Thistleton's translation here, a commentator. He says, Love never tires of support, never loses faith, never exhausts hope, never gives up. Well, the permanence of love now, verses 8 through 13. In this final section, Paul argues that love is permanent in contrast to the spiritual gifts that were so valued in Corinth. Prophecy, knowledge, and tongues. In contrast to spiritual gifts, which are for time alone, love will go on manifesting itself throughout time and eternity. The gifts are bestowed for a purpose, and when they have served their purpose, they will cease to be. Since love endures forever, it's superior to these imperfect gifts, no matter how impressive they might be to the Corinthians. He says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. So love never fails in the sense just mentioned that it never ceases to exist, even in heaven. Contrast to love, spiritual gifts have a built-in obsolescence. They are not permanent. Even prophecy, which Paul will argue is quite beneficial for the building of the church, will outlive its usefulness. It will cease one day. Prophecies are said to cease and knowledge pass away. But these are actually the same verb in the original Greek. The verb used with tongues will be, uh, will be stilled as different and has the idea of ceasing or stopping. Um, stopping by themselves. It's difficult to know if this tells us that we are to understand the ceasing of tongues is somewhat different earlier than prophecy, knowledge, and other miraculous gifts. So you see what I'm saying there? It, it's hard to know what to make of this. It, it could be the verb uh, used with tongues will be stilled. Tongues will be stilled is different from prophecies will cease. Um, you know, are they, are, where you understand the ceasing of tongues is different? Is it earlier maybe than prophecy? Knowledge and other, we don't know. The fact that tongues will one day cease would seem to be a problem for most charismatics who believe tongues are a heavenly language since language will not cease in heaven. Maybe that's not a great difficulty for them, I don't know, but maybe it is. 
Verse 9, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the completeness comes, what is in part will disappear. Disappears. For now, Paul now explains for that even with these miraculous gifts that are revelatory in nature, tongues, prophecy, and knowledge, the revelation provided by these gifts is only partial or incomplete. We know in part, we prophesy in part. Paul contrasts partial revelation to perfect revelation. There's a time, there's coming a time when completeness comes, Paul says, that knowledge will be complete um, and what is in part disappears. So I want to discuss what this completeness is. When completeness comes, when is that? When does it arrive? And that brings us to a kind of a, a problem or an issue here about uh, what does Paul mean here when he talks about what is this completeness? Is it when, when does this take place? Uh, is it already taking place or is it ultimately in the future? We'll have to decide that next time. All right, let's stop here for tonight and we'll uh, pick it up there next time, Lord willing, which is our last time, unfortunately, but that's, that is the case.